time to screw the norms. To fit in, we often hide what's on our minds, who we really are, or who we want to be, or even what we want to do. But now you're having the right conversations. Here, we'll talk about sex, relationships, and mental health, and how they interact with each other and so many other aspects of life. Shame can't survive when we're honest and curious with each other and ourselves. It's time for your mind to scream less and for you to screw more. I'm Rachel Wright, a non-monogamous queer psychotherapist and your host. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to The Right Conversations. I am very thrilled to have a dear, dear, dear friend of mine back on the show today. Um, And we're going to be talking all about boundaries and how they can change over time and probably get into some language stuff because we talk about this a lot anyway. So welcome back to the show, John. How are you doing? I am well. Thank you for having me. A pleasure to be here as always. Hey, thanks. Uh, I think most people know you. Um, In fact, I just recently or yeah, shared a story with you about someone who literally knew me because of you. Um, But for anybody who doesn't, will you tell them who you are, what you do, and what lights you up in this world? Sure. My name is John Romanello. In my, by day, I am a New York Times (laughs) bestselling author, and I own a marketing agency called Wellspring Media. And then also by day, but mostly by (laughs) night and in other days, um, what I am known for, at least with regard to its relevance to your audience, I am an educator in the relationship space, focusing on non-monogamous relationships and uh, sexual sexual shame. So I talk a lot about kink, but all aspects of sexuality, from embracing or, or you know the, the excavation and examination and discovery, and eventually the claiming of your sexual identity, and that could be both relationally or orientationally, and figuring out where you sit on the various spectra. That's what I do. Love it. I love it. I love it. I like that by day you're a New York Times bestselling author, but uh, by night that goes away. No longer. <laughs> you know, it's you just when I go out <laughs> at night and I know I it, that's because we're going to talk about language. So, yeah, by day, it is important in my in my actual like for my company. Right. We we are a marketing agency. We create uh, content for people, copywriting for people. So if I'm on a call with a prospective client, that will happen during the day, and it is important to those people. When I am out at night, I do not introduce myself as a New York Times bestselling author. It would be... I'm relieved the, to hear that, yeah, John. <laughs> it's, it's a, it would be the height of douchebaggery. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we could continue to be friends if that was... If we were out and you were like, hi, I'm John, I'm a New York Times bestseller. Just, we're just sliding it into conversation as often as possible. I'd be like, hi, I'm Rachel. I do not know this man. That all. I, <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Yeah. No idea what he's talking about. Oh, so, okay. Let's, let's dive in. I, you're one of the only people who is not a therapist who I actually trust to teach people around communication. Okay. Um, it's true. Like you, and you and I have talked about this, like the, the coaching industry, I think is so important and, and has such an important place. And there are so many people out there that call themselves a coach or call themselves a communication coach and simply don't know what they're talking about. Um, and you do. So before we get into like meat of communication, 
how do you know so much? Like what, what, how, how did this happen for you? <laughs> I, um, I am a, a person who grew up in the nineties and, uh, well, I was born in the eighties. And so I grew up around encyclopedia, right? So mm-hmm. I, I've always been a bookish sort of person. And I had the I had the world book encyclopedia, the full set, and then also the yearbooks. And that was a thing that I thought was was fun to do. I would just take down and I would learn everything about, you know, the, the letter M, like what everything <laughs> from you know, Marxism to marbles. And so I, for whatever reason, my brain is particularly good at um I wouldn't say rote memorization, although that is part of it. I tend to remember just about everything I read. But my brain is like a sponge, and sometimes I will be out somewhere, and I will hear a person say something, and I will feel this little factoid get stored Mm. in my brain. And I'm good at indexing information. And I've studied communication my entire life. I've always wanted to be a writer. I'm a writer first. And then when I moved throughout my life studying uh, psychology in college and then communication and then getting into marketing and learning about copywriting, understanding that there are different, uh, this this is not the correct term, but a good analog would be code switching, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, for those who are not familiar with that term, people who are in, who grew up in a, a certain type of ethnic community, learn ways to communicate with other members of that community. And then when they are outside of that community, they have to whitewash their language to fit in in professional settings. And this is a type of bilinguality. And so when you are, when you spend time in academia, as I have, and then you spend time in writing content to a specific audience, as I did in the fitness industry, and then you learn to ghostwrite for other people, and then you learn how to write marketing copy to not educate, but also inspire people to take action, you're always using the same words or often using the same words. You're pulling from mostly the same word bank. It's all, for me, American English. But there is a type of polyglottism that is prevalent because you need to know how to switch into a a particular channel. And then as I advanced in my study of relationships, recognizing in specific context what what the tone should be, you know, an empathetic tone versus a more direct tone, and then really understanding how to create safety using that that various tonality and creating those containers. On top of that, I, again, am a bookish sort of guy. So when I get interested in something, I get that ADHD hyper fixation. And so in the same way that when I was 11 years old and into Dungeons and Dragons, I read every Dungeons and Dragons manual. When I'm interested in communication, I want to learn everything. And so I've studied, you know, I'm very lucky to have studied rhetoric and argument in college, but then moving into conscious communication, moving into communication with, um, with younger people, how, how to speak to people from an authoritative or educative standpoint when you're, when you're mentoring people. And I seem to have been able to synthesize it fairly well and understand how to create, I'm a person again, because of the ADHD and probably my trauma, I need a lot of structure. And I need Mm -hmm. to sort of know which gear to be in. And that has allowed me to be good at creating frameworks and protocols for the types of communication in specific situations based on specific relationships or or desirable outcomes. And I really look at it as 
as polyglottism, like knowing how to speak in, in any circumstance. I love that. I love the combination of, and I think that this is where so many people thrive is in this lovely Venn diagram, the overlap of their professional and personal experience and really taking what they can learn academically, whether that is in traditional educational system or in not and and learning different workshops and things like that and and their personal experience and looking to where that overlap is and that seems to be where you also just really thrive whether it's in you know kink relationships like your your ability to speak about your own experience and not just make it about you but help other people understand theirs via yours that is a skill i believe i learned creating content around health and fitness because there is a obviously a plethora of information out there. You do your best you can to read everything. You mentioned coaches not really knowing what they're doing. There's this old canard in, in sports that athletes don't always make the best coaches. And there are a couple of very famous athletes, both basketball players and, uh, and baseball players. I remember when I was a kid growing up watching the Yankees, there was a player named Don Mattingly who was an incredible player. He was a, a franchise player. And then at some point he came back and tried to coach third base and he was terrible. Magic Johnson has tried to coach. And so there is this truism that being good at something does not make you good at teaching it. Yeah. So there was that. And then in the fitness space, there is this very clear, you know, almost a prime directive to not get caught up in the N equals one experience. So just because it worked for me does not mean it'll work for you. That is a good piece of anecdotal experience, but then to pull from research, from anecdote. Yeah. And then when you are a content creator, you get to push from this one-to-many perspective. And then if you're good at building a brand and create a community, you start to get a lot of feedback. And so that becomes sort of, you know, it's, it's not rigorous academic testing like the scientific method, but if nothing else, it does really start to inform how these things are working for other people, particularly if you work with one-on-one clients, and then you can refine from there. Yeah. Uh, I love that. Thank you for mentioning that. I <laughs> The old uh, adage of like people who can't do teach, I've always thought was so interesting because I'm like, oh, you know, it's actually been the opposite in my anecdotal experience. Like often people who can and do, do can't and, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. So with all of that said, how do you define a boundary? Well, this is a great, a great place to start. So I think that we should start with, we should begin with strata. Um, From the top down, from hardest to softest, or uh, there's a limit. And so limits are things that at this present moment in life, we feel are not available for any person or any circumstance, right? So for me uh, to speak in in pure, well, we'll speak in communicative terms. It is a limit for me. Yelling and screaming is a limit for me Mm. in um, my relationships of any kind. If someone approaches that limit, I do not immediately end the relationship, but I, I make them aware of it. Boundaries are below that. A boundary is something that is uh, circumstantial. So we understand that when people, some people are very activated and they don't have the communication skills, you cannot impose a limit of no screaming upon a child. A child will be very upset. And some people, based on where they are in their level of development, have the same level of emotional regulation as a child. And so you set boundaries. 
limits it crossed too many times. Um, they lead to the end of a relationship. Boundaries have to have a consequence of some sort. So the boundary can never be, you don't get to, you know, you can't yell at me. The boundary is, if you yell, I will do X. So if you, if you raise your voice, I will remind you not to. If you raise your voice again, I will exit the conversation. So boundaries are ways that we create um, an understanding of how other people, how we're willing to be treated and what we're willing to do if we do not get that treatment. Underneath that are agreements. This is a, a negotiated and, you know, uh, sort of ongoing conversation about agreements within that specific relationship, how we agree to treat one another so that we can manage expectations and agreements and expectations have to have a relationship. Most of uh, avoidable conflict is the almost direct result for unmet expectations. And the difference between a, a, an agreement and expectation is that an agreement is, is concrete. We've discussed it. And then beneath agreements, there are protocols. And this is how we conduct ourselves to make sure that our individual actions fulfill the agreements so that mm. we do not go past the boundaries and we never approach the limits. So a good way to think about boundaries versus agreements are boundaries are things that we're, we won't do, agreements are things that we will do, and then protocols are the ways that we will fulfill those agreements. And coming from the business world and helping branding and create companies, we talk in similar hierarchies. So we talk about um, there is vision, strategies, and tactics. The vision is the ultimate outcome you want to achieve. The strategies are the general ways we go about approaching that. And then the tactics are the day-to-day -day individual mechanical actions that we take to fulfill the promise of the strategies to eventually fulfill the vision. I love this. I want to like make a visual for our visual people out there. And have, do you have a visual in, in your program? I do not. I absolutely can create one in Canva, but I'm not going to. So I, <laughs> if you send me this snippet at some point, I can send it to our Canva guy. But Perfect. if if we rely on me and my ADHD procrastination <laughs> to get this done, it will never happen. No, I'll even like write it down on a fucking piece of paper and take a picture of it. I don't care. I just want to like, I'm more visual and I know a lot of people listening are too. And I, I think like seeing the, the way that you described how they um, inform each other and also are in a hierarchical uh, state is, is so helpful. So helpful. What is the difference in your eyes uh, between an ultimatum and a boundary? I'm usually, so <laughs> it, this, if, if everyone to take out a pen, if this is, if you only get one thing from, from this episode, I want it to be this. It is unreasonable, unrealistic, and most of the time unethical to expect people to be aware of a boundary you have not set. And therefore, it is unreasonable and un, unrealistic and un, unethical to punish someone or hold them accountable for crossing a boundary they didn't know you had. And often we get to the phase of being an ultimatum because we did not preemptively set the boundary. And it mm. has been crossed so repeatedly that now our resilience, our threshold for what is an acceptable number of times that boundary can be crossed has been trampled without this other person knowing. And so let's just work on 
three strikes is honestly unrealistic. Let's work on like a, a five strike system. A person can cross a boundary up to five times because often the reason they're crossing a boundary is because they have a certain pattern of behavior and we need to work with them. You know, it's relationships mm-hmm. or collaborative experience. Um, if a person grew up in a household where yelling was the sort of the default way that conflict was handled and I never set the boundary that I'm not available to be yelled at, they will cross that boundary four times. And then I say to them, if you ever yell at me again, I'm out. And then they cross it that fifth time. That's the ultimatum. And so boundaries are meant to be yellow lights leading to red lights. And when you do not tell a person that 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 speed bump was there, that yellow light was there, they're going to cross it repeatedly. So it's our responsibility to let people know what our boundaries are so that they have awareness of them. And if people are not aware of something, you know, again, it's imagine you're on an airplane, you recline your seat, there's a little kid behind you, and he's knocking his knees into the back of your seat. This goes on for an hour and a half out of this five hour plane ride. And finally, you're fed up and you have an outsized reaction. If you had mentioned something to this kid and their mother as soon as it happened, and then when it began happening again, now there's a level of awareness. And what you're really doing is sort of creating a narrative that your reaction is justified in some way. You're also giving them the opportunity to course correct. And so people get to ultimatums because they did not set their boundaries or they have, have set the boundaries and allowed the boundary to be overridden or trampled on so repeatedly that now they feel they have to create this incredible, uh, you know, that comes to this inflection point. Because remember, a boundary should be, if you do X, I will do Y, not if you do X, you have to do Y. So the ultimatum is, if you yell at me, I will exit the conversation. And then we get to readjust and work through that. And over time, we get closer mm-hmm. in how we can do As opposed to, if you yell at me, you're an abuser. And now yeah. you have to, you know, take accountability or you have to go to whatever, yeah. anger management, stuff like yeah. that. I so appreciate how you are describing all of this because the word boundary gets tossed around so flippantly and it's often uh requests i've heard people say um that was i made this boundary for our relationship that's always a fun one i'm curious what your take on on that is you cannot make a boundary for a relationship by yourself you a boundary is When boundaries are set unilaterally, they can only apply to one person. When we're talking about a relationship, that has to be an agreement. So, for example, my personal boundary is that I am unwilling to be – this is an example. This is not true in my relationship. But my my personal boundary is that I'm willing to be uninformed about what my other partners are doing sexually. And Mm -hmm. therefore – I don't want to be in the dark. And if I, if I, if that winds up getting crossed and people are doing things without telling me, we have to address it. But then I express my boundary, right? And and the reason that my boundary is there is if I don't know, if I'm feeling uncertainty or ambiguity, it makes me feel unsafe. It activates my anxiety. Are you willing to enter into an agreement that we will have preemptive disclosure before we enter into 
sexual relationships with other people, even, even if it's like to the minute, just send me a text before you sleep with the person. So the agreement that we mutually, we collaboratively make is upfront disclosure. And then we're doing that to avoid crossing the boundary. If you cross the boundary, I will have the reaction that I stated up front, which is I will need, I will need space, I will need time to heal. And you cannot unilaterally set a boundary for any relationship. You can set a boundary for how you're willing to be treated and you have to upfront like let someone know the consequence. And if someone does not agree to your boundary, then it's not an agreement. So if someone is in a relationship, any mm-hmm. any relationship, and they set a boundary and it's exactly how you described, if you then I, right? And the person's like, nah. Okay. So, <laughs> so in, the, in this instance, my boundary is I need to be in, you know, for, for me, like my emotional experience is that I uh, get anxiety if I don't know what's going on. So the boundary would be, it would be unacceptable. My boundary is do not sleep with other people without telling me first. And I need you to agree with that. You might say no. You say that level of up to the minute disclosure takes me out of the moment and I don't feel as though I have the same level of sexual autonomy that is fulfilling mm-hmm. to me. I can't fulfill that. I can't make that agreement and therefore I can't promise that that boundary won't get crossed. Now we're fucking negotiating. that's it now we're negotiating okay what can you do what is available to you at what point would you be comfortable disclosing for example could you disclose to me before you go out on a date and then i am willing to sit with the discomfort of an assumption that you will probably sleep with this person and then you can disclose whether or not that will happen after the date or the next day now that is still you know, eight hours of relative discomfort for me, but I can manage that as opposed to you never disclosing anything and I have no idea what the other person is doing in this relationship. So you set a boundary and you try to reach agreement, you try to reach consensus. And if that is not available, you just negotiate and negotiate until you reach consensus. And people often don't want to do this because it brings to light the very real possibility that this is an irreconcilable thing. So have you seen that happen with whether it's people who you've coached or friends or whoever? Oh, absolutely. I have. When I begin working with someone, the, the first thing is awareness. Like, what are the things that you need? Bring that to awareness. So, you know, how do we, what line of inquiry can I use for you to help you figure out what you need? But it is very often the case that one person wants a greater level of communication around outside sexual partners than the other and this person Mm -hmm. the the other person does not want to be informed i don't want to know what you're doing i will just assume you're doing x because for whatever reason you know their particular organization of traumas is such that they are pretty good sitting in uncertainty and you know perhaps because of that they have either more avoidant attachment or secure attachment but probably avoidant and it almost is always the case that an avoidant and, a, and an anxious person wind up in a relationship. You know, there's, <laughs> there's like one person loves travel, the other person hates travel, and then they marry yeah. each other. Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
you know, now you have to be willing to find some way that you can create safety in alternate ways. And most of the time when I'm helping people open up, they're not really diving into, um, you know, full steam polyamory with outside emotional relationships. They're opening up from monogamous to monogamish or maybe non-monogamous so that they have availability for sexual relationships. And if there's this irreconcilability, I do not want to disclose when I'm on dates because then I'm aware of your anxiety and that takes me out of my date. Sometimes it's how can we set a, uh, a, a pre-agreed upon uh, time block, let's say six weeks, during which we can reinvest in creating as much safety as possible and then try again. So sometimes it's for us to have a successful chance of opening up. Uh, that will be effective for us and won't just, you know, re-traumatize both of us. Yeah. What do we need to do? What do we need to put in place within the, our relationship? How do we invest in one another to create that safety? Other times, it can be as simple as, I, it's okay, I'm willing for you to um, have the dates <clears throat> when you want, but if I directly ask you what you are doing, don't lie to me and because I don't want to be deceived. Other times, the way you negotiate it is, it's okay for this person to have a greater level of sexual autonomy. And in exchange for that, there will, might be certain, uh, certain days and times that is available so, or certain days and times that are just for us. And then within the, the overall sort of sexual container, certain acts that are just mm. for us, whether that is not having sex with people, other people without boundaries, not using certain titles, not performing certain acts, et cetera. And so the, the goal is how do we how, how do we uh, set the ship on a safe path? And if we know that the ship is safe and we know that the destination is mutually agreed upon, there might be some availability for these boundaries to to shift. A big part of it is often when we have a craving or we feel we have a need, we are deciding that it is this very specific thing, but it's actually something more general. Like if you're craving potato chips, it might actually be salt. Any salty food will do. It <laughs> yeah. doesn't have to, you yeah. know, if you have pretzels, it's fine. So if you are feeling unsafe with this level of uncertainty, not knowing what's happening sexually, that's pretty big, but it could be what else, can, what five things can we do to inculcate this feeling of safety and then foster it over time so that this other thing feels less specifically necessary. That's it. Yes. Incredibly helpful. I also, I appreciate the, um, if the destination is agreed upon, then the, the agreements and boundaries on the way there can be negotiated. If the destination is the thing that is being negotiated, it makes creating the boundaries and agreements along the way very challenging, if not near impossible. Right, right. And so to use my own relationship as an example, um, I'm, I'm married to the love of my life. As of this recording, we've been married about three and a half or four months. We got married in late February. And Amanda is, she is my wife. She's the love of my life. We cohabitate. She's the only woman with whom I, I, I will have children. As of this recording, I have two other partners, one amazing woman uh, who lives in LA named Holly, another amazing woman living in New York City named Shelby. <clears throat> when we first started dating, Amanda and I first started dating, it would, that would not have been available. We had to build that level of safety. 
But throughout the entire five-year course of our relationship, it has never, the North Star of we will spend our lives together has never once wavered. And every action each of us has taken during that five-year period has advanced the ship towards that particular place. And over time, as there was more safety and more evidence and also just greater mastery of the various skills necessary, it became more available to have deeper outside relationships. And that means that it probably would have been a limit for Amanda for me to have a, uh, a, a very serious um, mm-hmm. primary, uh, additional partner. One of the boundaries we had early in our relationship is no matter who I was dating, it was a boundary uh, for her to discuss it openly online. Now I can, I tag both of my partners and everything. So there was a level of mm. not just keeping it, um, not really keeping it private, the people in our lives knew, but shining a light on it in that particular way, in part because her audience was still coming to grips with her being a polyamorous person. Now, yeah. after four years of being publicly poly, this feels very good for her. And so these things change over time. But the North Star of we will be together, we are getting married, we're going to live our lives together, we will have children, we are a family, that has been the North Star the entire time. And all of our actions have moved us towards that. So even when there were times where I perhaps wanted to have more sexual partners than she was comfortable with at that point, or when we were in COVID and it wasn't available, (laughs) all of the different you know, moments, those those slices of time in which there was some desire that was not readily available or a desire that sort of was being met and needed, uh, the the relationship needed some other type of buttressing to create safety. All of those were still moving us towards that central destination. The honeypot is more than the products in your bathroom cabinet. It's embracing that time of the month. It's staying balanced through the ups and downs, good sex and bad sex. It's exploring, it's learning, it's plant-derived. Powered by herbs and science, the first complete personal care system to get you what you need when you need it. Check out The Honeypot at Target, Walmart, Walgreens, and on thehoneypot.co. You can enter code RACHEL20, that's R-A-C-H-E-L-2-0, for 20% off your first Honeypot order on thehoneypot.co. So how do you, you mentioned things changing over time, and I, I think that this is such an important piece of talking about boundaries because another myth that is kind of floating out in the ether is that once I set a boundary, I look flaky if I change it. Or if I change my boundary, I won't be trusted or I won't seem consistent or um, it's confusing for people to change boundaries or agreements. And I'm wondering how you suggest people, I know how I would, and probably everyone listening has heard me talk about it. So how do you suggest people update these things, whether it's with their partner, their parent, their friend, like approaching and having this, I'm changing, I want to change this is like a whole challenge in itself. In addition to recognizing that like we have something that we want to shift. Yes. Great question. Um, so the short answer is a conversation, right? Um, <laughs> what? You talk to somebody. So <laughs> the way that I tend to look at everything is it starts with the self. So if I realize that there is a boundary that I have that is <clears throat> not protecting me 
the way I need it to, or it is restricting me in a way I don't want it to, I start with excavation. So my process is excavate, examine, and then eventually uh, integrate. And so I really look at, okay, well, why is this boundary, um, why does it feel constraining in a way it no longer did? Or why does it feel a little less uh, helpful than perhaps it did? So it starts with the self. And then again, I'm a person of frameworks and I also have uh, trauma and ADHD. So I cannot present anything to a person without a like trilogy of reasoning for this is what I was feeling. This is why I think I was feeling it. This is where I think that comes from. These are some of the different angles from which I have looked at it. <laughs> I have walked this back. I've walked this about three steps into the future. And eventually here is, here's the thing I'd like to change. You now know I would, I'd like to change it. And um, I'm available to hear. Most people don't need that. At this point in my relationships, I can just say to Amanda, uh, I know that we generally have a, an agreement to disclose ahead of time. And the agreement is not only do I disclose, but you respond and will. Um, so I'll give you a very, a, a great example that happened just about a year ago. Great. In New York city. <gasps> so I was, I was in town for pride. And I was there with Holly and another woman I was seeing at the time. And we go for pride. And so during that weekend, it is agreed upon with Amanda, I'm going to be having group sex with these two people and possibly someone else. I went to Torture Garden, a great event. And while there, wound up meeting another couple. This is a couple with whom uh, Amanda and I had matched pre-COVID. And so we've had this like two-year dialogue and had never met. They're in LA, they're in Indiana. So they happen to be in New York. They come to Torture Garden and I did not immediately assume anything would happen. So they come, they meet my other partners. It's toward the end of Torture Garden. Holly comes up to me and says, they want to go home with us and I really want to do this. So I, my agreement in the boundary with, with uh, in the context of my relationship with Amanda at that time is disclosure. So I let her know that this is a uh, possibility. And at that point, we're just playing the waiting game. But Amanda's sleeping. Hour <laughs> goes by, I don't hear nothing. <clears throat> so immediately, we're still at Torture Garden. And what I was comfortable agreeing to, I told Holly and the other woman, said, you two should definitely do this. This is absolutely a thing I want you to do. Mm. They want to take us back to the hotel room. I, as your dom, as your daddy, I'm going to go with you. I will get everybody settled in. And then we'll start making some grown-up decisions from there. I was hoping that at some point I would hear from Amanda. And I didn't. So now I'm in the hotel room. And either I stay or I go. So I send Amanda a long text. And I say, I know that it is our agreement that we not only disclose ahead of time, but also that we agree ahead of time. And this opportunity has presented itself to me. It's with this couple that we've talked about. Um, I am, I've been thinking about it for the past two hours and I've decided that I am confident enough in our relationship to know that if I go through with this and it upsets you, we can work through with it. Here are the four reasons I am thinking that going through with it is the right move for me. 
One, you already knew I was going to be having group sex this weekend, so this is not a surprise. Two, we have been trying to meet up with this couple for a long time, and it hasn't happened yet. Three, five is my favorite number. This is, I, <laughs> I, I haven't had a fivesome in a very long time. Uh, the four, and it is so rare that I meet another man for the first time with whom I am immediately connected and feel safe, and mm. I am interested in diving into a sexual experience with my other partners. Here are the reasons I think this might upset you. One, I am moving forward with something without your direct clearance. And two, on some level, I have anxiety that because this other couple is some are people you'd also like to play with, it might make you feel left out in some way. And I would never want you to do that. So I want you to know, uh, one, I'm not making this decision lightly. And two, I would, I wish you were here. If I could trade out, you know, I would, I would trade out any one of these people to bring Amanda Bucci into this equation. So I sent this long text, you know, kind of building out my reasoning. And so then when she woke up and read it the next morning, um, she texted me back and I told it her, I told her how it went and that during the experience, I also hooked up with this man in a way that I hadn't with a man in a long time. And I was like, Hey, surprise, gay shit. And she was so excited. <laughs> And so her experience was, I feel extremely well considered. He is mm. respecting the relationship. He has decided to move forward with something that is only in a bit of an escalation from this thing that I already knew was happening. And she was not only okay with it, she was overwhelmed with joy and so happy for me and also grateful that I had put that much thought into it. Yeah. And so the boundary, the, the, the agreement then became disclose ahead of time and if it seems likely, if it's if it seems like a greater than five out of ten chance, she she would say no to it. Don't do it unless I hear from her. I am almost never going to do anything that has a greater than five out of ten chance. She's going to say no. So in right. almost all cases, it's it really is dependent on the time of the evening. If I manage to get her before I go to bed, before she goes to bed, I tell her, and she says yes. And if not, I will send a similar text. So the boundary in the agreement shifted to accommodate a, a, a more practical approach to having these encounters. Similarly, if Amanda were on a date with someone, I tend to preemptively say, hey, if you're feeling really safe and you want to sleep with that person, go ahead. Um, it's entirely possible I will fall asleep watching my documentary while you are out. And I don't want you anxiously looking at your phone, waiting for me to wake up to give you the okay for something I assume is going to happen. So the boundary shifted because it was practical for it to do. And that, that makes sense for us. So oftentimes we draw boundaries around things we believe are protecting us. And then we, we get to that experience and it's not as challenging as we thought and then i can give you i can give you more examples of other things but the, the big thing is sometimes we just have a greater level of emotional safety and that boundary is no longer necessary to keep us as safe as we wanted other times we see that it's an impractical it's a practical impediment to the type of emotional or psychological or sexual fulfillment that we are trying to create within the relationship and then sometimes we are a little tender and, and we need to actually make the boundary more rigid. Can you give an example of what that looks like? And thank you for sharing that. That's a great story. I also like I, the text, that text that you sent is so thoughtful and sweet. I like, I was having an, an internal emotional reaction of like, 
a big hug. And and like I would I would obviously was not the one who received this text message. And it still felt like I could feel the uh love and consideration that went went into that. And it's just so thoughtful. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, thank you for receiving. I will uh I will have to dig through my message. I'll send you a screenshot of that text for that'd be amazing for, for anyone who is interested. We, you know, we can you and yeah. anyone who is listening to this, I will make sure I have it so you can request. Um a tightening up tightening more up budget. yes um so we get this question a lot with regard to something like pregnancy mm. the question is do you think that your boundaries will change or your agreements will change when amanda is pregnant i believe everything in my life will change when amanda <laughs> is pregnant i believe that i will have less time to work with my clients because I will be taking care of my pregnant wife. So certainly it is, it is probably the case that uh, my relationship structures or that my availability for outside um, sexual encounters might change. The way that we have it set now, in times of some sort of big change, um, big project, or any sort of emotional upheaval, what gets shut down is new. So again, I have two existing partnerships. If Amanda was going through a really tough time, I would not be expected to exit those partnerships. What I would do and what I would be expected to do, our agreement is that I just stop going on dates external of those partnerships. And then there is a practical element. So rather than the agreement that I'm available to travel to see either of my other partners once per month, we might tighten that up. And just so I'm more available to Amanda, the other partner, the other whomever or both might come to Austin and visit. So that is a tightening up of the practical application of the, the, uh, the thing itself. Other places that this has happened a lot in, um, uh, so I've, I've worked with, some, with a couple and they wound up having a i don't how can i say this without revealing anything that's too sensitive it, it wound up that for the year their expenses were higher than they wanted and at right. that point they had a limit on their what their monthly expenditure could be on mm. external dating and so the the boundary just shifted that instead of $600 a month on monthly dating, it, it went down to $300 each. So if you think about, you know, spending up to 1200 bucks a month on outside dating, that can be quite a bit over the course yeah. of a year. That's, you know, 16 grand almost. And so they knocked it down to 300 is what is available for each person to spend on their outside relationships. And so that was a financial boundary that needed to shift based on this outside uh, and, and un unexpected, um, you know, just sort of financial expense that they had. Okay. So, a question popped into my head trying to listen to you through the lens of someone who might be listening to this, and I want to ask it, and then we can wrap mm -hmm. up, which is, let's say, okay, so I'm going to use Amanda as an example because we were using your relationship. Sure. Amanda's going through a tough time, as you said, like in an example, hypothetically, and says, I need to tighten my boundaries. And if you continue in your existing relationships, I can't continue how we're going or to, I, she would never yeah. say this. So I'm having sure. trouble giving it as an yeah. example. Yeah. That's, it, this um, is, that's, it's so, it's, it, that's almost yeah. like saying, if you keep 
going to the Being, gym, you yeah. can't eat cheese anymore. Right. It's, it's, it's yeah. so, it's so, it's so outside what would happen. Um, yeah. yeah. But like, how, how would you handle some, like receiving something like that? And what do you want to say to someone who may be in quote unquote, Amanda's position? So if you are in a non-monogamous relationship and you find that for whatever reason, maybe someone in your family has cancer, maybe you've lost your job, maybe one of your partner's partners created havoc in the relationship and now there's all this repair work that you have to do. If you find yourself in a position where you feel so dysregulated that the only path to safety is for you to demand your partner shut everything down, I would say put a time limit on that. It could be as simple as for the next 30 days, you know, just tell your partners that you're going to, your other people that uh, you just need to prioritize what's happening on the home front and then we can revisit. I would encourage you to excavate and examine and interrogate and eventually integrate this real thing. What is it that you need to feel? Do you need to feel prioritized? Do you need that to feel that you're taking something away from your other partner because punishing them restores a sense of power that mm -hmm. might feel imbalanced within the relationship container? Does it feel that you just need them to agree so that you have a sense of control? Does it, is it that you need distance from one of the other people? If you can't answer that question for yourself, what would you be getting out of this shift back to cl being closed? If you can't answer that for yourself, then I think that asking for that is, is probably premature because whatever the, again, we go back to, I think that I absolutely need potato chips. If I don't go to the, the gas station right now and get a bag of potato chips, I'm going to go crazy. But like, maybe you just need salt. You know, it could, what is, you, maybe you're just hungry and you're, you're, you're incepting that it is specific to potato mm -hmm. chips. So if you need to feel safety, what are other things that could fulfill that need that could help you feel safe again. If it is, there was this other person who disrespected the relationship, how can your existing partner behave in a way that acknowledges that disrespect and what can he say to that other person or what can that other person say to you to feel that accountability has been taken? What protocols can you put in place to prevent this from happening in the future? Where can you get this, this need met? Sometimes it is as simple as I just need to feel like the top priority in my partner's life. And if your partner is not in any serious existing relationships, I would say that is on a scale of one to 10, seven in terms of being reasonable. If your partner has outside relationships, particularly if they've been ongoing for more than a couple of months, it's like a three. I don't think, I do not think it's a reasonable request. And in almost all cases, if you are asking for another person to be excised, the first response after you like try to regulate should actually be inviting. And don't excise, invite them in, talk to them. These are the challenges I'm having in your relationship with my partner, my husband, my wife, whomever. It is almost always the case that 
we build, especially if you don't have a relationship with them. This is why I'm really in favor of like kitchen table poly. Amanda has yeah. a great relationship with my metas. It's very easy to other someone when mm-hmm. you don't have a real, you know, when you don't know what they smell like, what, what their annoying habits are when they chew. If you've never watched a movie with them, it's often the case that inviting someone in and at least trying to repair through a community and intimacy is the better move. If you've been in a 16-year monogamous relationship and you've opened up and now your husband is fucking someone and the NRE is so intense that he's not giving you any love and, and he just like he's not and he's toned into this totally different person and it's been like two weeks, you get to say to your husband, yo, champ, like I still exist and we gotta, you know, I, I need I need some stuff too. If this has been going on for six months, that is a case of you not setting boundaries and allowing them to be trampled on. And now you're creating an ultimatum and that's unfair. So the self-awareness to set them either from the get or along the way, like, Hey, I felt deprioritized today. I want to talk about it so that it doesn't, today doesn't become 500 todays. And now we're, you know, a year and a half into something else. And exactly. And yeah. otherwise, you'll just start, you'll stew in it. And that never once in the history of anything has sitting and stewing in your own shit ever been like, yeah, you know what? The outcome <laughs> is better. The outcome is better after sitting and not sharing and just getting angrier like and more resentful. That's never done it. And it could be yeah. really, really simple things. I, you know, it can be this little thing that you notice that like, eh, I didn't like it. And I'm going to talk about it. And then sometimes talking about it releases the activation. And other times it's, we need to create a protocol around that. Love it. So if people want to learn more from you specifically around communication, can you tell them about your amazing program with Amanda? Absolutely. So my wife, Amanda, and I have created a course cleverly titled how to say the hard things. It focuses on the three pillars of what we, so, so we have a, a system that we call compassionate candor, right? I don't think radical candor is the way to go, you know, in the business space, awesome. Um, and, you know, people talk about like, there's so, you know, just in, in discussion of language, there are certain things that are an immediate turnoff. Like if you're in a relationship and you need care and love and intimacy, when someone comes at you with like brutal honesty, Nothing should be brutal in your relationship unless it's happening in the bedroom and you both agree to it. So (laughs) compassionate candor is understanding that there is always a kind way to tell a hard truth, that the things that you need to say are important and valid, and we are entering with a mutual level of respect for the authenticity of our own experience and the compassionate understanding of how sharing that information with the other person may affect them. And so there's two people who are equally important. And so the way that we create compassionate candor is three main pillars. Uh, the first is confidentiality. Everything that is said within this container, just, uh, you know, it, it's specific to us and we're not going to share with the other people in our lives without express consent. So now we really have the availability to be our fully honest selves. Um, The second is consideration. Anything that I say may affect you. And I want to be not only compassionate, but also diplomatic, right? If I don't like your friend, I'm going to not just say, 
you know, I don't like Margaret, she's a bitch. It's I'm going to be specific. I'm going to be considerate of you in that relationship and say, I am challenged by your relationship with Margaret. And in particular, I feel that she um, she negs me. You know, she is she kind of insults me and I don't feel safe in her presence or there's just something that is challenging. So consideration for the experience of not only the person you're talking to, but also the information you're now putting in their head and how it may affect the, their relationships with other people. And the, the final and most important is consent. Do I have consent to share this with you? Are you, do I have consent to enter into this conversation with you right now? Are you available? Do I have consent to discuss this with this person? And we do not get to breach consent and confidentiality. Um, so the course, how to say the hard things has a unit on all of these particular things that we have a unit on, um, you know, creating, we have protocols for everything from how to lead someone through receiving challenging information um, to how to receive it yourself. So in an ideal world, both people or everyone mm -hmm. would, would go through training like this, but Agreed. It, if you're the only person in a relationship and it's not, you know, we, we talk about romantic relationships, but there are people I work with um, through my agency, you know, who are learning how to be better leaders. There are people yep. who I work with who are trying to figure out how to have better relationships with their uh, their coworkers or their bosses. Many, many people come to us because they, they have absolutely no idea how to communicate with their family. So yeah, relationships are relationships are relationships. Right. In a romantic relationship, it is a reasonable ask to say, there's this course on communication. I, I want to go through it together. And that person, if they're equally invested, they'll probably agree. It is unrealistic for you to invest in our course and then try to get your mom to go through it as well. That's not right. likely to happen. So family relationships are very challenging. So the thing I want to impart on everyone is you are fully 50% of the equation for every relationship you're in. And the way that math works is if you change 50% of one side of the equation, the outcome of that equation will change as well. And so if you learn these skills and these protocols, you can now show up differently in the way that you receive or communicate information to people, even if they themselves have not built any new skills or tools. And you can start to influence the way those conversations go. You can learn how to set boundaries. You can learn how to share with them in a way that sets the stage for them to be a little bit more receptive. And that's, again, that, that compassion and that understanding. And it can really change your life. We've had people change their entire, the way that they, they communicate with their teams. We've had a lot of people end relationships because once they started getting honest, they realized that this was never going to work. Yeah. And we've had a lot of people say that this has saved their relationships with their partners and with their friends or with their families. And it's, uh, I think Amanda and I will have a, a very long timeline of creating great work together. This is the first thing that we have collaborative, collaboratively worked on start to finish. And it is very much a reflection of what we've created to make our relationship at its core and the orbiting relationship so amazing. And I could not be more proud of it. And I know that you'll put a link in the show notes, yeah, but it is yeah. amandabucci.com slash hard things. And um, it, it really is a, a truly magnificent piece of piece of work that we've done and I'm very proud of it.
Uh, as you should, as I said at the beginning, I am super reluctant to send people to programs that are not created by therapists. And this is one of the only things that I have ever talked about or promoted or endorsed, for lack of a better word, um, that that isn't by a therapist because I know I know how the two of you show up and it's it's wonderful. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. That really that means a lot, truly. Yeah. Anything you want to leave everybody with before we say uh, goodbye? What we say? Um, yes. Remember that boundaries are things that you don't want to do and agreements are things that you do to make sure that you don't do the things you don't want to do. <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's the most important thing. Um, it's so, so much the case that many people want to focus on these boundaries and, and they feel very restrictive, but it's very much like do this, not that. There, if we focus mm -hmm. on agreements and we we come to consensus, and you just focus on fulfilling your agreements, uh, it sort of almost automatically protects you from crossing boundaries. So that is the wonderful work of relationships. You get to create whatever you want, and rather than exclusively focusing on all the shit you don't get to do, focus on all the stuff you can do to make things safe and fun and fulfilling and vibrant, and then. You know, not being able to have a sleepover without asking first suddenly does not seem like such a sacrifice. Thank you. I appreciate you so much. An absolute pleasure. That's all for today, you sexy folks. What questions came to mind as you were listening? Continue the conversation with me over on Instagram at the right underscore Rachel. And don't forget, please leave a rating and a review so that we can continue erasing shame and stigma together.